Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. I haven't had the privilege of uh, meeting you, and there's a few new faces, and the summer has been great because we've had a whole bunch of people visiting. We've had a whole bunch of people that are our regulars go away on vacation and come back looking really tanned and refreshed, um, but it's good to be together as Light Church. And um, like I said, my name is Brian, but my surname is Barnes. And uh, as a Barnes, I form part of a little tribe called the Barnes family, and my particular portion of that tribe, my little nuclear tribe, is made up of four people. It's myself, my wife Caitlin, and then our two um, passionate boys, Judah and Caleb, who are five, and Judah turns eight tomorrow, which blows my mind. But uh, we are the Barnes family, and it means something to be a Barnes. It means something because as our little tribe, we carry a culture, we carry a way. There is a certain ethos, a certain moral standard, a certain way of living that we subscribe to as a little tribe that forms part of a bigger bonds tribe that goes through generations, right? But what does it mean to be a bonds in our family? Well, we have, uh, we, we are pretty intentional. Caitlin and I are pretty intense, actually. Um, so, uh, you know, pray for the boys. But uh, we have, we're pretty intentional about the kind of culture and value system that we set up in our home. And so we have little sayings like, uh, Barnes's do tough things. Or, uh, you know, a Barnes is a noble, kind, gentle, compassionate young man. Uh, we talk about what it means to be part of the Barnes family. We do things like uh, cultivate a culture or a heart of gratitude as every evening we come to the dinner table and we try to do this and we get it right about 70% of the time where um, we can sit around the table together and before we start eating, obviously we pray and we say grace, which Caleb always has to be the one that prays because he's pretty domineering. And uh, then we, it's hand, oh, sorry, before we do that, it's, uh, we talk about our gratitude or our grateful, as Caleb says, and he has to go first for that as well. And we say things like, what are we grateful about for the day? Um, and then we do hands in and we do Barnes family, or if it's just me and the boys, we'll do Barnes boys. And we talk about what does it mean to be a Barnes boy? And we've got these cultures in this way of living. When I drop the boys at school in the morning, I say to them as they get out the car, remember, you're a Barnes, just to reinforce who they are and the type of value system and culture that we subscribe to even when we're outside of the home. Paul, as a pastor who loves a church and a group of people in Ephesus, basically does the exact same thing as he writes this letter to them. He tells them who they are as Christians and reminds them about the value system, the cultures, and the ethos of how they should live out their lives as Christians. And he's basically saying to them, hey, hands in, Christians, you know, go and live this way, live out your life in this certain way. So what does Paul say? As I say, like to be a bond to the the family is to be kind and strong and brave. What is Paul saying to the church in Ephesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, he says right off the bat in the first chapter of Ephesians, he says that we are in Christ. That is the defining thing about us. We are in Jesus. No less than 36 times in this letter does Paul reference that phrase, in Christ, telling us that as disciples of Jesus, we are in him. That is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we are in 
Christ, that we are united with Jesus. He says that if you are in Christ, get this, he says that Christ's riches are our riches. He says that his righteousness is our righteousness. His power is our power. His resources are our resources. His position, think about this, the position of Jesus before the Father is our position. Where he is, we are. What he has, we have. We are in Christ. And we are told that as Christians, we are made new, that there was a certain way, a certain life that we lived in a family we belonged to, but then in Christ, we are completely made new as new beings. And he talks about, Paul talks about through this letter in Ephesians, that these formerly but now statements. He talks about who we once were, but now we are this. Look at what he says. He says throughout the book, he says we were dead in sin, but now we are alive in or with the Messiah. We were separated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. We were foreigners, but now we are fellow citizens. We were darkened in understanding, but now we have learned about the light of the Messiah. We have put off the old self and put on the new self. We were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. And so Paul is just reinforcing and reminding and cementing who we are as disciples of Jesus in this letter. And then he talks about this new life that we now enjoy. He says that we have been chosen and adopted by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. We've been sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been given resurrection power. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has now been placed in us and has been given to us as a resource for us to use as our disposal to live out the Christian faith. We have been given eyes to see the Lordship of Christ. We've been brought from death to life through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. We've been raised and we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that the every spiritual blessing may be given to us. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Jesus Christ is now ours. And then he goes on to tell us that we have been created for good works. This is who we are, friends. As we form part of the body of Christ and we form part of this tribe of what it means to be brought into the family of God, this is who we are. We find here that Christianity has nothing to do with religion. We sang about that earlier with Brandon and Ashley. It's nothing to do with rules and a list of conforming to do's and don'ts. If you're, if you're wondering what does it mean to be a Christian, it's not about living a good life and earning your space before the Father. Being a Christian is not about adopting a certain philosophy or a kind of ideologies. It's not about financial prosperity. It's not about kind of, you know, blessings that we will receive only in this life. Being a Christian, in fact, friends, is not even about becoming a nice person. Being a Christian is about becoming a new person. It's about going from death to life. Being a Christian is about going from darkness and stepping into light. So Paul tells us who we are. As we've gone through the book of Ephesians for the last couple of months, he's reinforcing who we are and the characteristics that make up a person who belongs to this tribe. And so I just ask you, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I wanna ask you simply this. Do you believe, not based on your circumstance, but based on who you are as a disciple, do you believe that you're blessed? Do you believe that you're chosen? Do you believe that you've been adopted and that you are holy and that you've been placed before the Father as blameless because when he sees you, he actually sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you've been redeemed and forgiven?
because this is who we are as disciples of Jesus. So we've journeyed through this book. We've seen over and over again what our position before Jesus Christ is, and that is, or before the Father, it's that we're in Christ, that we don't have to earn or achieve. We're just placed before the Father based on the victory of Jesus Christ alone. And then Paul goes on in the second three chapters of this book, the second half of the letter, he tells us how we live out our Christian faith. And we've, we've learned about this. He talks about how we need to walk in love. Or walk is just a metaphor as live out your life in such a way that you live out the values of the kingdom here on earth. And the value, the ultimate value of the kingdom is love. He tells us to prefer one another. To, to prefer the other in this world. He calls us to mutual submission in the church. He talks about household codes. How do we live as married people, as single people, as parents? How do we operate in the workplace? And he exhorts us to stand firm in Christ when we face opposition, both in this world that we can see, the physical, tangible world, but also in the spiritual realm. And he, and he invites us to put on spiritual armor the, the armor of God, because he says that you're facing a spiritual battle, so you need spiritual armor, and we talked about that. And then lastly, as we kind of wrap up this exhortation and this, this, uh, this invitation from Paul that's given to us in this letter, he, he, it's kind of his mark drop moment at the end of the message, as he's told us who we are and how to live. Paul models for us, almost indirectly, what it looks like to live a life of mission. We read this morning as we close. When I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, Paul models for us that walking in love, mutual submission, preference of the other, putting on spiritual armor, all leads towards the good works that God has created for us to do, which is to open up our mouths and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Now, he's basically saying to us, hey, friends, now that you know who you are, and now that you know what to do in light of who you are, go and tell other people the same. It's an invitation. Paul ends this letter by giving the church an invitation to a life of mission. But mission does not start with us. Oftentimes when we talk about mission or we talk about preaching the good news or telling other people about the love of Jesus Christ, we start to equip ourselves with skills and strategies, which is important and good. But mission never starts with us. Mission always starts with God and with God's radical love. Tyler Preeb in his course on missional living says, mission starts with God and his radical love. This love flows from God's own character and reveals itself in how God pursues, forgives, rescues, and reconciles. A.W. Tozer says that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, because if mission does not start with us, but rather starts with God and His radical love, we need to ask ourselves the question, what do you think about when you think about God? Because what you think about when you think about God becomes the most important thing about us. If you view God as a headmaster or a, a head teacher in the sky, kind of commanding us to live a good life, and if you don't, you're going to get punished, then we will operate from a place of performance. But if you view God 
And if what comes to mind when you think about God is radical love, then that reorientates and restructures the way in which we desire to live out our lives because we operate from a place of love. You see, the Bible itself, the scriptures is filled with character traits of God and descriptions of who God is. And the Bible shows us this constant and comprehensive picture of the character and purpose of God. In the scriptures, we see that God's mission, his mission in the world, always flows directly out of who he is, and that's love. Right from page one of the scriptures, God's creation account is a motivation of love. He creates the world because he wants to create you and I so that he can live in a love relationship with us. And then when mankind sins and falls, the rest of the scriptures is all about God's pursuing love to win back the very creation that he desires to be with, which is you and I. In John 3, 16, we read this, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that anyone or everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. In Romans 8, Paul, the author writes, but God proves his love for us as if he needed to. He proves his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so these scriptures, friends, they're not just generic Christian scriptures that we say for like feeling good. These are not just scriptures about God's kindness. Rather, these are scriptures and more that we can unpack in, this, in the Bible are about the radical, countercultural, passionate love that God has to seek and save the lost. These scriptures show us that mission is not about duty. It's not about effort or about achievement. Mission is always about love, and mission always flows out of God's heart of radical love. So what does it mean that God's mission flows out of his love? I'm glad you asked. Let's look a little bit deeper at God's love and how it expresses itself in action. Love compels God, if we look at Tyler Preeb's example or definition, to pursue, forgive, rescue, and reconcile. God's love always pursues people. In Luke 15, what man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one until he finds it. Friends, the priority of heaven is not the sustainable stewardship of the flock. The priority of heaven is not for you and me who have surrendered ourselves to Christ to come together and hang out and have a good time and have coffee while there is the blessing of heaven for us to do that and the joy of the Father as we celebrate fellowship and community together in a web of committed relationships as disciples, submitting to one another and preferring one another in love. While that is a key component of what it means to be the local body, the church, this is not the priority of heaven because he does not want to sustain the flock, but rather pursue, the, the priority of heaven is always the radical pursuit of the ones that are lost. We see that God forgives. God's love shows itself in radical forgiveness as it extends itself even to those who may feel like they are the most unforgivable. 
Second Peter says, the Lord does not delay his promise as some delay, but, as, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God's forgiveness is available and as everyone has access to it. God longs for every single person in our city to come to repentance. Everyone in your family, everyone in your workplace, everyone in your circle of influence to come to repentance and receive the forgiveness of Christ. We see that God rescues because it doesn't leave us in our recognition of sin and our awareness of our need to be saved, but he actually rescues us. We get this, God is a God who acts. He's not a bystander. He sees the evil in this world and he acts with his very son. He, we see this in the story of Israel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, how God loves people so much that he rescues us from sin, Satan, death, and hell by the sacrifice of his very son. He's always at work, even right now. God is at work desiring to break into people's hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to set them free. That could be you in this room, and it could be those in your workplace, those in your school, those in your dorm room, those in your family. God is pursuing people, not only to create an awareness of our need for him, but to actually go and rescue. Second Timothy, Paul tells the pastor Timothy, he says, this is this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then we see that God reconciles. There's so much, we know this, there's so much fracturing and polarization and division in our world. You will see this in, in all areas of life. We just turn on the news, you may have experienced it yourself over the last couple of years, even within the church, the division and, and, and the separation that has taken place. And sometimes these gaps of division in all areas of life, political, social, cultural, can seem irre irreconcilable. Yet in the midst of the brokenness of this world, the scripture says that God comes to bring blessing and peace through Jesus Christ. God creates common context and common ground where enemies can become family and find themselves in the church. We just look around this room right now, how different we all are. Different interests, different perspectives, different upbringings, different cultures. But through Jesus Christ, unity and connection can be found. We see this in Ephesians where Paul talks about how different people groups, people of different value systems, cultures and beliefs, upbringings, racial, social, economics, have come together for he is our peace who made both people groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. We see this between God and people. As sin separates us from the Lord, we see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. We who were once far from God because of our sin, because of our past or history, have the invitation to be reunited with the Lord by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, what is God's invitation in all of this? Well, God's invitation to us is to let the love of God 
flood our hearts and let that be the fuel and the foundation for us to design our lives that will ultimately, yes, produce our own flourishing, but design a life of missional living so that the world can experience the love, grace, mercy, and kindness of our Father. And they too may be reconciled to Him by faith or by grace through faith. Mission, friends, exists because love demands it. You and I have been created for good works. We don't earn our position before God by good works, but we have been created for good works, and Paul models this for us. How does he do that? Well, he he talks about the message. He says, pray for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What message is he talking about? Well, for all of us, our lives are all formed by the story that we believe to be true, right? All of us. So what exactly is the gospel message that we are proclaiming? What is the gospel? Well, the Christians in the first century in Rome which is the time of Paul's writing, they actually didn't make up the word gospel. Contrary to kind of popular belief, gospel is not in fact a Christian word or term. Gospel simply means good news. And the Christians appropriated it from the Roman culture. As the Romans were fighting their battles in distant lands, winning over new territory for Caesar, as they were on the frontier lines, whenever they would win a battle, the masses would run around the different communities and they would send out messengers yelling back to the women and children at home or into other communities and beyond that they would yell out this frame, this phrase, Roma Victor, Roma Victor. And, and it would basically meaning that Rome is victorious, that Rome has won this battle and this land is now ours. The battle was secure and the hearers of this gospel, the hearers of this news would be confident that now peace is at hand. And so when the early church were thinking about language that they were going to use for this message that they wanted to run around and proclaim, they adapted this word gospel from the Romans and their culture because they found that the word gospel or this proclamation of good news that would bring about peace for those who hear it would be the most appropriate fit. And so they would run around basically with this idea of saying Jesus victor or God is victorious. Jesus is victorious and peace is now at hand. The battle has been won. And so the small marginalized church moved out into Rome with the simple message that Jesus Christ is the true victor. And if you follow other gods, uh, you're gonna waste your life. But if you follow Jesus, you will find your life in all of its fullness. And that's the message that we have to proclaim. And so when we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about the good is good news that we are carriers, custodians of, who run out into the world to proclaim Jesus victor or Jesus is victorious and peace is now at hand because the battle has been won. In fact, it's actually part of what will bring us purpose and life and fulfillment in our experience on this planet. You see, we can chase after what we think will bring us the good life, but actually a life on mission, partnering with Jesus, proclaiming Jesus victor, is what we were created for. And if we do the very thing that we were created for, we will find fulfillment and purpose in this life. 
So that means that there are two ways to live. The way that God invites us to live that will bring about fullness and an alternate way. Which means that there is a danger that we could mislive our lives. The danger of misliving. You see, we live at a time in history when everyone seems to be seeking a full and fruitful life. Walk into Barnes and Noble, you'll see tons of books on like what is going to bring about the best experience in your life. Five steps to happiness or seven seems to be a good number. Seven steps to a new you or whatever the book titles may be. Everyone is seeking a quick fix to a good and prosperous life. And yet people in our world always seem to be destroying and sabotaging their lives while pursuing their ideal of what it means to live a good life. Now, nobody plans to shipwreck their lives. Nobody plans to end up living unhappy. Everybody believes that the way that they choose to live is going to produce the fruit that they want in the end. But William Irvine, he says it this way. I think it's brilliant. He says, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the present diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you, sabot- you, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. That really hits true. But in the midst of this, Jesus' words pierce through. I have come to give you life and life to the full. Jesus promised that his way, the way of love, the way of Jesus, the way that unfolds as a life on mission will lead to a meaningful life, a fulfilled life, and a not wasted life. So, How do we live a meaningful, fulfilled life? How do we follow Paul's example and the invitation of Jesus to a missional life? Well, Alistair McIntyre says, man is essentially a storytelling animal, a teller of stories that aspire to truth. That means I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? Stories shape our lives. And the story that we subscribe to and believe to be true will be the thing that shapes out our existence on this planet. And with stories shaping how people view the world and how people operate in the world, it's really important for us that we get the story right and we live into the correct story. The world is telling a story. And so many people are living into that narrative. Jesus tells a counter-cultural, upside-down kingdom story the true story that we are invited to be part of. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of all of these narratives, these cultural narratives, as well as our own personal stories, in the midst of it, Jesus interrupts these smaller narratives and he invites everyone into the true story. What are some of the stories the world tells us? The world will tell us that we need to subscribe to the story of pursuing a valuable career that ends in a certain type of success. Some of us subscribe to a story that is rooted and grounded only in our family nuclear story. 
Some of us allow our lives to be consumed by the story of our children. The world is telling us that our stories can be directed by our sexual ethic or what we believe to be true around our sexuality. The world is telling us that we can subscribe and make our entire life story about our political view and what tribe we subscribe to. There are a whole bunch of small narrative stories that are distracting us from the main story of who we are and the story that we ultimately a part of, which is told in the story of God. When Jesus says, come, follow me, what he is actually saying is leave your small narrative, your story behind and step into my story for your life. When Jesus goes up onto the shore and he says to the disciples, come, follow me, and there's, there's uh, fishermen, what do they do? They leave their story and they step into Jesus' story and the grand narrative that he has for them. And they change the course of human history. A tax collector steps away from his story, steps into Jesus' story and shapes the trajectory of the modern world. So what is the Christian story, the narrative? When we look at the Bible, we can identify four major movements to God's overarching story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. First up, creation. We see this in page one of the Bible. Creation accounted for as this um, act of God as we are created and made for a divine life of love. But then comes the fall. The fall is where things go wrong and sin enters the picture. Due to Satan's tempting of man and tempts us to doubt God. We are left with inner lives that have been uh, submitted to sin and rebellion. Sin causes us to wonder if I can ever be loved or if I can ever be wanted by God. But then enters redemption because the story does not end with sin, right? John Tyson says, he frames it brilliantly. He says, the good news is that God our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. And so we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the presence of sin. And then we're saved for a person. Ultimately, the heart of Christianity is not moralism, you know, change and God will love you. No, the heart of Christianity is that in Christ, we are literally given a whole new spirit that's put in us in place of a dead spirit as a free gift of grace so that we can have connection and union with God. And then comes about restoration. We look forward to the day when we might be made right, when we trust in a creator and a redeemer who says that everything is gonna be made new. And so in light of the gospel, there's this invitation to step into this grand narrative story and a response that is required. Our response to the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel is threefold. It's repentance, it's faith, and it's obedience. We are called to repentance. We're called to turn from our old way of life that is steeped in our instincts to sin and rebellion to God. We're called then secondly to respond in faith, to believe that what Jesus has said is true and then we're called to act in obedience and to begin to order our lives and align, align our lives with the character of God and his desires for our life in human flourishing. We're called, we're called to design a life around what God's purpose is for you and I. Because we're called into his presence, 
We are then empowered by the Spirit, which is important because we're not invited to do this in our own strength. We're invited to live this way, empowered by the Spirit of God who sent us. And Paul tells us that we are sent as what? Ambassadors. We're sent as his representatives, as ambassadors of God's kingdom to go into the world with courage and compassion. You see, we're not saved so that we can sit around and have a good time together. We're saved for a life of mission. We're saved to go and do good works and we're empowered to go and do so. We're not saved to come and sit on the bench. You know, if I use a sports analogy, there would be nothing worse than to be chosen to represent a, a, a professional soccer team and then to train all week and to get equipped and to have all the skills and all the knowledge and then when game day comes to be put on the bench and to just sit and watch everyone else play. No, in the kingdom of God, we're trained and we're equipped and we're empowered and then we are chosen and match day is every day and we go out and we are chosen to go and play the game. Paul tells us, pray also for me that the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ may be given to me when I open up my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. You want pa passion and purpose for your life? It's found when we carry the message of Jesus out into the world as a teacher, as a stay-at-home mom, as an accountant or designer or college student or bartender or whatever moment in life you you're in right now. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is to carry the mission and message of Jesus out into a world who desperately needs it. And so Paul says, for this I am an ambassador in chains, bound. Yes, he was actually writing from physical prison in this moment, but there is a metaphor here as well that he cannot escape this purpose that God has placed on his life you want to live a passionate life? I'm telling you, it's not going to be found in the things of this world. At least you won't be able to sustain it. But live a life on the mission of Jesus, he'll ignite a flame in your heart that no one can extinguish. And so Paul uses this word ambassador and he uses it in other letters that he writes to other churches. In 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's who we are, we're in Christ, we are new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that's the same message? That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not using people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of re reconciliation. We are therefore. So he's saying this is who you are, reunited with God. Okay, because of that, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal. God is revealing himself to the world through you and I. Meaning, if we don't carry the message of the gospel to the world, how is the world going to hear about God? Tyler Preven, in his course again, says, we are ambassadors of hope. How beautiful is that? An ambassador, you are an ambassador of hope. This is our core identity. God empowers us as his representatives, as citizens of heaven, to go and establish embassies and outposts of his kingdom wherever we are to establish embassies. Caitlin and I and our boys had to go to the embassy. We were living in South Africa last year and um, come November 2022, uh, we had to go to the American embassy in Durban, South Africa. What is an embassy? An embassy is a physical location that represents a country 
that is also governed by that country in another land. So when we went to, we drove through the streets of Durban, found a very dodgy parking, parked, had to pay some guy to like watch our car because we're in South Africa and that's how things are done. So we like pay the guy, watch our car, you promise it's going to be okay. He promises me that his words mean nothing, but uh, we just faith that it's going to be okay. And then we go up into this building and in we go. And as we cross the threshold into the American embassy, we transition, even though we're still in South Africa, we transition from the governing powers of South Africa and we step into the governing authority of the United States of America. We're going to apply for our visa. And we got it, and then we have photos, and we celebrate, and it's amazing. But as we are in that physical location, we're in another country, in South Africa, 16,000 kilometers, I think it's like 10,000 miles away. And we are governed by, in that small little space, the authority of America. As ambassadors of God's kingdom, we are sent into other lands, America right now, San Diego, to establish embassies, to establish a rule and reign of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So that wherever we are, in your classroom as a teacher, in your cubicle at work, in your, wherever everyone seems to work from coffee shops, in your coffee shop where you are freelancing, in your dorm room, in your digs room, wherever it is, you are establishing an embassy where that physical location in another land is going to be ruled and reigned by the authority of the king of heaven. That's the call of an ambassador. What is an ambassador? Well, one definition I found says an ambassador is an authorized representative sent to act and speak on behalf of his or her government in a foreign country. They are tasked with representing the values and ideals of their leaders, their government, and their culture to people in whatever place they have been sent to. Ambassadors work out of an embassy, which can be thought of as a micro kingdom where the sovereignty of their home government exists inside another place. We are sent to establish embassies of God's kingdom in other places around the world, in the place that you're currently in right now. So our missional identity as disciples of Jesus is that you are an ambassador of God. Say ambassador. Yeah, you can do better. You are an ambassador. Can you say ambassador? You're an ambassador. You're sent by God to, to represent the ideals of his kingdom in the world. And so an ambassador, to, to, to be an ambassador and to live into this identity requires three, three things from us. It's to act as a re representative of a different place. It's to have a different governing authority. And it's to have a different culture that we subscribe to. Let's look at each one quickly. Ambassadors represent a different place. Very simply put, ambassadors represent the values, culture, and story of a place in another place. Everyone is an ambassador of something. Right now, you are an ambassador of something. It can be an Apple product. It can be a political ideology. It can be a particular sports team. Zach, right, Zach, can you just stand up? He's an ambassador of the Padres right now. Look at him. He's just like carrying out the culture and the values. And when you look at him, you're like, oh, he subscribes to representing the Padres in another place at a particular time, and he supports them. We are ambassadors of the Lord. As followers of Jesus, we're called to represent his kingdom. Wherever we go, when people see us, they should, oh, immediately he supports the Padres. When they see us, when people see us, is there something different about us that represents the kingdom of God? Oh, that person's a Christian. That person loves Jesus. Ambassadors have a different authority. 
to function properly as an ambassador, we must submit to our sending authority and obedience and we enact the wishes and will of our sending authority, God himself, in another place. And because we are sent, we are authorized. And because we are authorized, we are empowered to speak on God's behalf. That is crazy. We are authorized and empowered to speak on behalf of God in this world. And then thirdly, ambassadors have a different culture. Ambassadors of Christ operate as dual citizens. One day, hopefully, I will be a dual citizen. I'll live here for long enough, and I'll get a green card, and then I'll write this American test where I will know more about American history than you guys will, and, uh, and then I will walk out, and hopefully you're all going to be there, and I'll carry my American flag, and we'll do the whole thing, and we'll salute, and I'm hoping the military guys will be there with a the trumpet, and we're going to do the whole thing, and then I'll be a citizen of South Africa and America. Well, we are dual citizens of this world and of the kingdom. We do this by seeking to inhabit the world and the worldly culture and serve for the common good in the place we find ourselves in, but we maintain our own unique viewpoint and posture of being a citizen of the kingdom. So how do we actually do this? Well, it's, it's very important, this, as we, as we think about a life of mission. We contextualize the kingdom of God and the gospel for the world around us with, yes, boldness, because that's what Paul said, you be bold, you're proud. You gotta be proud. You know, one thing I love about Americans, you're so proud about their nation. Americans are so proud. Uh, the 4th of July was a, was a feast of the eyes, like just American flags everywhere. We marched around our neighborhood and there was the, um, some guy was, had the, his boombox and they were, had the national anthem going and we're doing the whole thing. Americans are so proud, it's amazing. I, sometimes I'm like, hey, I wish the church was as proud to be a Christian as Americans are to be American. I'm talking on like a global scale, right? Boldness, but, but also here's the thing, we gotta do it with sensitivity. To approach the world as a Christian with insensitive boldness is to fall into the, the trap of being offensive. So many Christians have done this. We offend the world. But to become too sensitive without boldness is to fall into the, the trap of compromise. Too many churches and Christians do this as well. We've got to strike the balance. Because to do neither is to become irrelevant. We have to have courage to be bold while at the same time possessing the compassion to be sensitive. There's a delicate balance to strike if you want to get this right because we can detract from the message that we're called to represent if we don't. So we need to live into that tension as an ambassador. All of this, friends, I end with this. I know it's, I'm, I'm going on here, but I think it's important and Paul gives his, his attention to this at the end. All of this is an invitation to design our lives around the way of Jesus nothing of importance or significance will ever happen by accident. We have to design our lives with intentionality around the way of Jesus with the goal being to be on mission with him. I love doing my Lectio and lighting my light church candle and allowing the house to smell like whatever that candle smells like and doing my personal moments with the Lord. That's, that's, that, that's the, the fuel to our relationship with God but I cannot sit in my house alone and do my own little thing. Christianity is not a private faith. Christianity is a corporate faith that we are then sent on mission out into the world to represent our king and our kingdom. So we have to create a life of kingdom mission with intentionality that is woven into the story of God. John Tyson says this, he says, to live a missional life, to resist the drift towards passivity and comfort. Resist the drift towards passivity 
and comforts. You will not happen upon a mission or life. You must partner with God to design your life with a vision, creativity, and intentionality. For we are God's handiwork, Ephesians, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has works for us to do. So we need to design our lives. John Tyson goes on to say, kingdom leaders who make an impact are proactive, not passive. They take time to design their life, their lives, but this requires initiative and intentionality. We will not drift there naturally. Without realizing, we can easily end up living by defaults, mindlessly pulled and pushed by the cultural forces surrounding us. And at that point, it becomes really difficult to distinguish Christians from the world. A missional life of intention, purpose, and meaning will not happen by accident. We have to make the shift from living by default to living by design. First Timothy, Paul tells us to practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. He's talking about the way of Jesus. He's saying pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things for in doing so you will serve both yourself and your heroes. And this happens not by our works or effort, by receiving the grace of God and then channeling that grace into the good works that he has prepared for us to do. I wanna tell you, in designing, it's, it, this is so important. Bored people, they pursue entertainment. Consumers have preferences. Religious people have rules. Busy people have a bunch of lists. Missional people, we get to have stories. I want a life of stories. And so we have to design a missional life, life that we're called to have, representing God's kingdom, has to be our primary goal. And the overarching narrative of our lives is not your career or your family or your whatever identity. It is the narrative of Jesus Christ and his gospel message. And one of these key shifts to living a life by design is using the resources at our disposal intentionally. Resources like money, time, energy, mental and emotional capacity. These are all things that God has called us to steward wisely. So I just want to close. Lean in like two minutes. I've got two minutes here. Three big elements that we can use very practically as we close to begin to live an intentional missional life. It's where do you live, where do you work, and who do you spend your time with? So ask yourself, where do you, where do you work? Jesus said in Luke 10, he answered them, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. He's talking about how much we must love God. And in the same sentence, he says, love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus finds it appropriate to talk about loving our neighbor in the same sentence that he talks about loving God. Basically saying, hey, how you love your neighbor will reflect how much you love God. Jesus placed an emphasis on this. And so I ask you, do you view where you live, where your home is right now? You could be renting, sharing an apartment. You could have two homes because you're in San Diego, but you have, your parents live elsewhere. Wherever you live, do you view it as a location of comfort or is it a place of missional opportunity? Do you view your home as a place where you go to sleep at night or do you view it as a resource that God can call you and invite you to steward for hospitality and mission? On a very practical level, just like getting to know your neighbors, Get to know their names. How many of you know your neighbors' names? Know their stories? It's been such an opportunity for us as we've found ourselves in a new neighborhood and we know nothing about anything. So we like have to ask everyone questions about everything. And it's been this wonderful missional opportunity to get to know people in our neighborhood. 
do things like taking the dog for a walk as a missional activity. The amount of people I meet walking our dog in the neighborhood who are also walking dogs. We get to chat, missional moments. It was Caleb's birthday a few months back and Caleb loves to bake, so him and Caitlin baked a cake and there was so much cake. And uh, as you can tell, we're watching our figures. And, um, <laughs> and then, um, don't laugh, um, there's lots of sugar in America. Um, we, made, we bake our cake and, uh, and, and there's so much left over. So what is, they go around Caleb and Caitlin, they go offer neighbors cake on Caleb's birthday. Opportunity for mission. Mission doesn't have to be like standing on a box on the street corner shouting like turn or burn. It's just taking the neighbor a piece of cake, having a conversation with someone as you walk the dog. Missional activity. Where do you work? You might hate your job. You might love your job. You might be indifferent to your job. But living by design means that you press into your calling as an ambassador of God and you live with intentionality in how you approach your work. Do you show up to work tomorrow morning with a positive attitude? that just is like, this is a missional opportunity for me to meet people, to spread the love of God. And then who do you spend your time with? Intentionality in this area can bring so much fruit. A friend of mine who pastors a church here in North Park a few years ago, um, we were chatting around like just some of the cultures and values that they have in their church and they encourage their small group communities to use their birthdays as missional moments and opportunities. So what they would do, and this is an example, right, of living on mission. They would have a birthday party and they would intentionally invite about 50% of the crew, maybe more, would be from the church, people that they're doing life with on a day-to-day basis, Christian people. And they would use it as an opportunity then to invite other people in their lives that are indifferent or don't go to church or, or, or never experience the love of a community. And they'd invite them into that space. And then in those moments of birthday parties, they would pray for the person whose birthday it was. They would speak words of prophetic words and encouragement over the person and encourage them in the way of Jesus. And they would do this all in the presence of their friends or family who don't go to church regularly. They used their birthday parties as an, intense, as an intentional tool to live on mission. And a number of people joined small groups and joined their church because they first attended someone's birthday party in the church. Either we have our birthday parties as separate events or when we have them together, we just kind of hope that everyone gets along and then it's done. Can we steward moments in our lives as missional opportunities? God's spirit is always inviting us friends to live on mission. We just need to take the time to discern, okay, God, what are you doing? And how do you want me to be a part of that? What resources are at my disposal? My birthday party, my dog, my resource, my time, my energy. I want to invite Brandon Ashley to come up. We're going to close now. Sorry, it was a little bit longer, but hopefully it's been helpful. After speaking of his need for God's power to speak into the world, Paul closes with a reminder about his particular situation. This side closes out the book. I don't know how to say this guy's name. I'm just going to go, how do I say that? Yeah, that guy. Our dearly beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord. Will you tell all the news about me so that you may be informed? I am sending him to you for this very reason to let you know how, sorry, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who have an undying love for God, the Lord Christ Jesus. Here we see that Paul is not just a theologian, missionary, church planter. He's just a lover of people. And Paul sets his example as a lover of people. And he gives thanks in his letter. And he uses these words, grace and peace, faith and love. This love, grace, faith, peace, all flow out of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But notice that Paul adds something that's pretty profound in this last passage. He talks about their undying love for God. And he closes this whole statement with their personal relationship with Christ. So I just ask you today, if you've listened to this, maybe you've been here for a few weeks, you've been listening to us, we've been unpacking like who you are and how you live. And today we've invited everyone to go into the world and go make disciples of Jesus and you know, leave your own narrative, step into God's narrative. I really pray that in the coming months that, that we start to see your coworkers, your family, your friends coming to Light Church or a church. But, but, but just, just come and, and, and they're here because you invited them. And then they find life in Jesus. And guess what? Their kids or their eventual kids and their grandkids found saving grace and faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of a simple invitation. Who's God put on your heart? It all starts with how much you love the Lord. So I ask you, do you love him? Are you a Christian? Are you willing to step outside of your own small narrative and step into his grand narrative that spans all of eternity and it's working its way around the entire globe? If you're new to this, maybe... I just invite you to turn away from sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe start the journey towards an undying love that will last for eternity. So yeah, what a great question to end the letter with. Like, do you love Jesus or do you wanna love him? So we're just gonna respond with communion today. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, why do we have communion? We take the bread which represents Jesus Christ's body that's broken for us, that wins a victory, and his blood that washes us clean is represented by the, the, the grape juice. And we just take a moment before the Lord and we say, thank you for the victory you won for me. Hey, and if you're not a Christian, if you haven't made that moment of saying, hey, I wanna believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, I wanna turn and follow him, today could be your day and I'd love to pray with you. We've got baptisms next week, sign up. Get online, scan that code, do the, fill the format. I'll reach out to you. We'll have a conversation. We'd love to baptize you next Sunday. The best thing that you'll ever do is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So let's stand. I'm gonna pray. And we're gonna have communion. There's a table this side for this side and there's a table this side for that side. And just come forward, break a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and find your way back to your seat. You can take a moment with the Lord and then Brandon and Ashley will lead us. Thank you, Lord, for your great love towards us and your kindness, Father, by sending your one and only Son. I thank you that there is a grand narrative story that spans eternity, the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ is victorious. And as we come to the communion table today, we remember the victory of Jesus. We celebrate. We say, thank you, Lord. If you want to receive Jesus for the first time, I just feel like I need to do this corporately. Just, I just want you to raise your hand. And, and, and I wanna pray with you. If there's anyone that just wants to receive Jesus Christ the very first time, you, you've never made that like moment of this, I'm, this is me now, I'm gonna receive the grace of Jesus. Is there anyone that wants to do that this morning? Uh, we won't pray corporately, we, I just wanna know who you are. If there's anyone while we break in communion, please come to me in the front, I'd love to pray with you. You just feel God by his spirit just inviting you into that space. So let's break bread together. You can make your way up to the tables and uh, Brandon Ashley will lead us in worship when we've all taken. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.